You are listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, online at bethanynaz.org. I've been concerned lately about the lack of people that I'm bringing to church with me on Sundays. Do you ever feel concerned about that in your own life? But God has given me three men that I'm praying for and I'm building relationships with them. And I pray for them on a regular basis that they would come to know Jesus. And so you might join me this week in a prayer that we talk about often. It's called the Open Arms Prayer. It's a great prayer, I know, because I wrote it myself. And it has three elements. You might want to jot it down with me as you go. You can find it on our website also. But it says, Father, bring somebody into my life this week. Give me the ability to recognize them and the grace to open my arms to them. So what we mean by opening arms is just making time and space for a person. It's not anything memorized that you say to them. It's just saying, you want to become friends. You want to hang out with me. You want to spend time with me. Let's get to know each other. And it's truly making space and time for people in my life, people who aren't followers of Jesus. Just, I want to be friends and truly forming a friendship. And so I've been working on friendships with three men for a little while now, and, and I just believe that before long I'm going, to be, I'm going to be seeing God do great things in their lives. Here's what, I will, here's what I will challenge you with. If you pray this prayer tomorrow morning, the next morning, the next morning, Lord, bring somebody into my life today. Give me the ability to recognize them. The reason we pray that is because God's bringing people into your life every day. We just don't see them. And give me, the, give me the grace to open my arms to them. If you pray that prayer, I'm just going to tell you, better brace yourself because at some point you're going to feel the voice of the Holy Spirit whisper, that's Him. That's who? That's who I want you to open your arms to. You've been praying. That's the answer to your prayer. God's going to place people in your life. And so I invite you, over these next several days, begin praying this prayer with me. I think just seasonally, as a church, we just need to find ourselves collectively Pray in this prayer so that we can be faithful to the call that God has placed on us to share Jesus with others, okay? So in my life as a pastor, I get to have conversations often with people about faith. This is typical. I remember one conversation with a guy who says to me, I don't believe there's anything else after this life. I said, really? He said, yeah, I don't believe there's anything else after this. I think this is it. When you die, it's over. There's nothing more. You know, and after I talked to him for a little while, I became convinced that he really does believe that. He believes that when you die, you're dead. That's it. There isn't anything else. You're done. In fact, he's basing his whole life on that belief. You only get one life, right? There are no do-overs in this thing. And he is basing his whole life on the belief that when you die, that's it. There isn't anything after this. I've had conversations with a handful of atheists in my life. People who have said to me, I don't believe in God. I don't believe God exists. I don't believe there's any such being, any such thing. And I've tried to talk to them about this idea of intelligent design, and therefore there must be a designer. And the response is, that's not enough for me. I don't believe. I've had conversations with people who believed in naturalism, Only the natural exists. There is no supernatural. And morality is just learned behavior. I've talked to people who believe in this idea of relativism. 
right and wrong is kind of up to you. There is no absolute moral right and wrong. You get to decide what's right, what's wrong. And that list just kind of goes on and on and on and on. And what's interesting to me is that people are basing their whole life. And you only get one. There's no do-overs. But they're basing their whole life on a belief system. And so I wanted to ask you this morning, what is your life based on? What is the foundation for your beliefs? What are you basing your whole life on? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about life? What do you believe about death? What do you believe about afterlife? What do you believe about morality? What's right and wrong? What do you believe about Jesus? What is your whole life riding on? Right now? I think it's a great question. I think it's something that we just need to be reminded of to consider every once in a while, no matter where we are, whether we've been in the church forever or whether we've only been in the church a little while, or if this is one of our first Sundays to show up at a church. I think you ought to know what your whole life is based on. So we're in the Gospel of Matthew, and we have been and will be for a few more weeks, and we're looking at this Beyond series. Because what happens in the Gospel of Matthew is that we see in Jesus God doing beyond, far more than what people are asking of Him. Okay? So I've tried to talk to you about Matthew um, every Sunday for these last several weeks. and, And I just thought maybe I would do a little quiz today and see how well you've been paying attention to the context and just ask you, To whom is Matthew writing? Who is his audience? Who are the people Matthew is writing to? The Jewish people. Look at you. You're making me so proud right now. Wow. And he's trying to present Jesus as the Messiah. You're right. All the prophecies of the birth of the Messiah are fulfilled in Jesus. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the story of God and your history as a people. Okay? Jesus is the fulfillment of the story of God and the Jewish people. And Jesus has come to bring about on earth the, well, I had a few, kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, yeah. And so Jesus comes preaching and teaching and healing. Preaching, he's proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Teaching, explaining what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And healing, demonstrating what the kingdom of heaven looks like in real time on the streets, okay? And so we're in chapter 8 of Matthew, and in chapter 8 we begin in chapters 8 and 9, this demonstration. Jesus heals a man with leprosy. He heals today a servant of a centurion. Uh, As you move on, he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And as you move through the story in chapters 8 and 9, one day there's a storm, and Jesus calms the storm, showing that he has authority, not only over sickness, but over nature. And then he casts out some demons, showing that he has authority also over evil. And then there's this girl who is dead, and Jesus brings her back to life. And then there's these people who are blind, and Jesus lets them see for the first time in their lives. And there's a guy who can't speak, and Jesus gives him the ability to speak. So this is the story we're in, okay? Pretty cool, huh? 
So let me take you to uh, Matthew chapter 8, and um, I'm going to start reading with verse uh, 5, okay? Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. So when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a few months ago, you might remember I entered Capernaum, and there was a sign there as you walk in that says, hometown of Jesus of Nazareth, Capernaum. Um, A centurion actually didn't say Jesus of Nazareth. He moved from Nazareth to Capernaum. I'm sorry about that. Uh, Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion. Do you know what a centurion is? Think about the word, centurion. You might figure it out. We'll talk about it in a minute. He's a Gentile. He is a Roman soldier. In fact, he's a commander in the Roman army. A centurion came to him, and he was asking for help. Now, what do you think he wanted help with? Lord, he said, my servant, or it could be translated my slave, Lies at home, paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come heal him? Now, we don't know for sure, but we wonder if Jesus is saying that tongue-in-cheek. Because everybody knows that the guy is a Gentile and Jesus is a Jew, and Jesus cannot go into the home of a Gentile without making himself unclean. And so you wonder if Jesus is saying, (laughs) you know who I am, right? Are you saying you want me to come to your house? Don't know for sure, but that's what we wonder if Jesus means by that. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Why? But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I, myself, am a man under authority. In other words, I have a commander over me. He commands the whole legion. With soldiers under me, I command a hundred people under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And and to that one, come, and he comes. I say to a servant, do this, and he does it. So when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Because what the guy was really saying was, just like I have authority over men, I believe you have authority over diseases. So Jesus was amazed. And he said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel, meaning among the people of God. This guy is a Gentile, right? I've not found anybody in Israel with such great faith. And then he makes the statement about the heart of the gospel. I say to you that many will come from the east and from the west. What does he mean by that? He means people who aren't Israelis, okay? He means people who aren't Israelites. People will come, Gentiles, from this part of the world and this part of the world. And they're going to take their places at the feast with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, people who aren't Israelites are going to get to the feast in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom, meaning those, some who are Israelites, will be thrown outside into darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Some Israelites aren't going to make it because they didn't believe. And then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would be. And his servant was healed at that moment. That's unheard of. Nobody had ever experienced anything like that. I mean, we saw Jesus heal before, but what did he do? He reached out his hand and he touched the man, right? This time, Jesus just says the word. Probably a man he's never seen, and he's miles away. But in that moment, the man was healed. 
When I think about my, uh, my conversations at the last church I pastored in Cincinnati uh, for 10 years there, one of my most fond conversations was with a man whose name is Dwayne. Um, it's one of the things I love to tell. I, I, I share it with anybody I can. Uh, I probably shared it with you at some point. But Dwayne said to me one day that as a young man, my parents and my pastor was concerned about me. And my pastor invited me to his office to have a conversation about my faith journey, and so I did. And he asked me a question, and I love this question. He says, Dwayne, I want to ask you a question, and I want you to answer it. Okay, you ready? I'm ready. So he says, Dwayne, what if, what if you spent your whole life building a kite and it didn't fly? Dwayne said, I was puzzled and I was troubled, and I just said to my pastor, if I spent my whole life building a kite, it would fly. And he said, no, you're not hearing me. You spent your whole life. Your life is over now. You built a kite, but it didn't fly. And Dwayne said, I just felt uneasy within, and I just tried again to assure my pastor, no, I, I think if I spent my whole life... I would figure out a way to make it fly. And he said, no, Dwayne, you're not hearing me. You spent your whole life. It's all spent. You built a kite. It did not fly. And Dwayne said what he was trying to say to me was this. What if you spent your whole life going one direction and it didn't work out? What if you based your whole life on something and it didn't get you the result you thought you were going to get? What if you gave your whole life to a belief system and it didn't fly? And Dwayne said, I knew what he was dealing with because I had, I had lived my whole life with everybody around me telling me what a good boy I was. He said, I don't know, Pastor Rick, being good was easy for me. It came natural for me. And, and all my life, people would tell me what a good boy I was. People would shake their head and say, Dwayne has a good heart. He's a good boy. And he says, you know what the truth was? I was. He said, I, I, was, just a, I was just a good boy. When it came to doing right or wrong, I did right. When it came to being careful with people and conversations and concerned and compassionate, I was. I was, I was a good person. I've been told that I was such a good person. I believed I was a good person. And I think it actually spurred me on to even continue to be a good person. I was, I was just by nature just a, a really good person. I'm not trying to brag on myself. He said, it's just the way that I was. It was my, it was my makeup. It's the way I was wired. It was just the way that I, I, I am. I just good but he said what happened to me as I grew up in that church I couldn't imagine what more I could possibly need spiritually could I get any better
And when it came to this idea of asking for help from Jesus, I just didn't see a need. My parents knew it. My pastor knew it. And the kite I was building was being a good person. And I was basing my whole life on the idea that I was probably good enough. Now, I think the story about my friend Dwayne and the story of the centurion has something in common. You may say, I don't really know what a centurion is, okay? Let me, let me make it really plain and simple for you. A Roman legion, okay, in the Roman army would consist of 6,000 men, okay? 6,000 men. It was divided into 60 centuries. How many men are in a century? 100. And over every century, there is a commander. The commander was called Guala, a centurion. So a centurion oversaw 100 men. There were 60 centuries in every legion. And so the Roman army functioned in that way. That was their division, okay? So you, you might be aiming to head to a battle and you would take legions of soldiers. We're going to have this legion posted up here on this hill. This legion will be over here. This legion is over here. And in every legion, they're divided into centuries, groups of 100. And over every century, there's a commander, and the commander is called the centurion. You guys catch on faster than any group I've ever tried to preach to in my life. Yeah. And so he, he has this situation. He has a servant, and the servant's sick. What's different about him, what makes commentators who study the Scriptures for a living, what makes them scratch their head and become puzzled is that the reverse would be true in the Roman world. In the Roman world, slaves just didn't matter. Whether they suffered or not was of no importance to anybody. Whether they lived or died was of no consequence. In fact, if you were a master and you had slaves, you could do with them whatever you wanted to. You could treat them however you wanted to treat them. In fact, if you wanted to take their life, it didn't matter to anybody. There, was no, there were no consequences to taking the life of one of your slaves. You owned him or her. You could do whatever you wanted to with them. And so for a, for a Roman centurion to come to Jesus and say, I really need your help. I've got a problem. I've got a slave. And he's suffering terribly. We just can't really understand that, except to say there was something different about this guy. He obviously was a really good guy. Here's what we learn in the passage. Being a really good guy was not what the story is about. There was something else about him, and that's what the story is about. So if you were going to base your whole life on being good, I think the question is, well, how good? <laughs> and who decides how good? How good is really good enough? I mean, how good would you have to be? One time I remember bringing some scales with me up here, and I was like, you know, how, do you just have to have more good than bad? Just as long as the scale tips in your favor, is that enough? Or do you need a really big stack of good and the stack of bad has to be really small? I mean, who decides how good is, is, is good enough? 
So here, here's what I'm going to say to you this morning, okay? I'm going to make three statements that I think are um, statements to keep in your memory throughout the week. The first one is simply this. Citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, and I'm using Matthew's language here, has nothing to do with, and this is my language, how good of a person you are. Okay? Some of you say, well, I know that. But you don't know it. Because even today, you're living your life and you're trying to figure out, am I being good enough? And if I ask you today, do you know where you would spend eternity? You're going to say, I hope. And you're going to tie to that some language about, I think, I've, I think I'm doing good enough. So you say you know it, but you don't really know it. I'm not saying that's the case with everybody, but it's surprising how many conversations I have as a pastor with people about their relationship with God, and they always want to come back to this. I just hope when I come to the end, the good Lord will say that I've done good enough. Well, I'm sorry, but citizenship into the kingdom of heaven has nothing to do with how good of a person you are. Now let's talk about a second idea, okay? I grew up in church. My mother had four little kids. And when I say little kids, I mean little kids. Uh, in a span of five years and three months, my mother gave birth to four children. I knew that we'd get that kind of reaction. I'm sorry. I just... so, so I'm the youngest of four, the baby, but not spoiled. And I think that's amazing that it happened that way. <laughs> but my mother took me to church when I was only a few days old. And that has been the practice of my life for 57 years now. I mean, I was raised in it. I was steeped in it. You, can I, do I have words to tell you? Went to church, continued to, up to three times a week all of my life. I mean, the practices were so important for my family and my life. When I talk about practices, I'm talking about incredible things that we do with our bodies, our lives, that become a means of grace through which God changes us. Like going to church every week. Like daily devotional time, one-on-one time with God, prayer, scripture reading, really important stuff. Some sort of group life, Sunday school or small groups, learning to serve, volunteering, giving of my resources, sharing my faith with others, those kinds of things. I mean, I'm steeped in it. It's been my life. It's always been my life. By the way, my mother said, when I took you to church, Ricky, when you were born, she said, I had three other kids, and they weren't much older than you, and that was before we had disposable diapers, and it was before we had a staff nursery. All four of you sat right there on the seat with me and my mother. My dad didn't become a Christian until I was four, so those first four years of my life, my mother was taking us to church by herself. It was always my life. Jesus makes a statement that is troubling. And it involves people who were raised like me in the sense that they were steeped in religion. You were born a Jew. I mean, all their lives, all they've known is we are the people of God, you know? And here's what Jesus says to them. I say to you that many will come from the east and west... He's not talking about you guys, by the way, not the Jewish people, right? I'm talking about people from over here and people from over here, people who are Gentile. And they're going to take their places at the feast with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But listen to this, 
the subjects of the kingdom, some of the people of God, right? They're going to be thrown outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What he's saying is, some will not believe in me and they will not make it into the kingdom of heaven. And this is the second statement I want to make. Citizenship in the kingdom of heaven has nothing to do with what family you were born into. And if you think that doesn't really apply in this room, I would beg to differ with you because there sometimes can be an attitude. Rick Harvey, I was raised in it. I'm steeped in it. My grandfather and my great-grandfather and my great-great-grandfather were Nazarenes. It's my DNA that it flows through my veins, you know. I don't know how I couldn't make it. Let me move to a third statement. I remember a guy named David who showed up at church one Sunday morning. I met him. His parents were really excited that he was there. He was in his early 40s. He had a wife and he had two kids. They weren't with him at church. His kids were teenagers. He had probably lost a little bit of uh, influence over their lives. His wife was physically sick. He'd grown up in the church. His parents still attended. But alcohol had become domineering in his life. Uh, He was living with an addiction. David and I met a time or two, and we talked about what it would mean for him to follow Jesus. We talked about his uh, struggle with alcohol. But I remember one particular Sunday he came to church. He was especially moved by the choir. And, and, and I was especially moved by the choir this morning myself. I relate, you know. Service ended after the sermon was over, and he gets in his car and he drives home. Pulls into his drive, but he can't get a couple of lines that, that were in the song the choir sung out of his head. It was a soloist singing. So instead of putting his car in park, after sitting in his drive for a few minutes, he puts it in reverse. And he backs out of his drive. And he retraces his steps home and ends up back at the church. He walks in the door because the next service is starting. And he listens to the same choir and the same song and the same sermon. But when it was all said and done and there was an invitation to come, he walks out into the aisle, down, kneels, and he just cries like a baby. And Jesus did the most amazing work in David Ausler's heart. In that moment, he asked if his sins could be forgiven. And if he could have a whole new and better life. If he could be born again. In that moment, he bases his whole life (laughs) on the belief that Jesus 
could save him. Now think with me about the centurion, okay? He's got a problem. The problem he has is he's got a servant at home that he cares about, which seems unusual, and he needs Jesus to come, right? The problem is that Jesus is a Jew. He is a Gentile. Jesus can't come to his home and remain ceremonially clean. So now what are we going to do? He finds a solution. And he says, Jesus, I'm a man under authority. I know what it's like to carry out a command. I'm also a man with authority. I have soldiers under me and I have slaves under me. I tell them, you go and they go. You come and you come. I believe, Jesus, that just like I have authority over soldiers and slaves, you have authority over diseases. And all you have to do is give the command, and the disease will leave my servant. And Jesus is blown completely away at the faith of a Gentile. And he says, in all of Israel, I've not found faith like this. And so, and so here's, what, here's what is happening in the story so far in chapter 8. When the guy with leprosy last week was healed, remember we talked about that? A member of Israel is restored. Okay, we get you. But what happens when the centurion's servant is healed and that story unfolds, we begin to realize that people are putting their faith in Jesus outside of the people of Israel. And you know how faith is defined? Believing that God has entrusted His authority to Jesus. Believing that anything God can do, Jesus can do. Believing that Jesus can heal the sick. Believing that Jesus can, drumroll, forgive sins. Believing that Jesus can make a person right in the relationship with God. Believing that Jesus can restore a human life. And so we just discovered something amazing. And here we go. The requirement for citizenship in the kingdom of heaven is faith. It's not about how good you are. It's not about what family you were born into. It's about faith. Do you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God? Do you believe that Jesus Christ can get you the life that you were created to live and can take care of you beyond this life? Is your whole life based on what you believe about Jesus? You know? See, what I love, too, about this whole story is that beyond, you know, beyond what he asked for, hey, could you, could you help me out with my servant? My servant's really sick. Beyond Jesus healing his servant, he says, I'm going to give you citizenship into the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is big. I know you came asking that your servant could get better, and he just underlines this verse that we've been celebrating where Paul says, now to him who is able to do far more. What do you mean far more? I mean abundantly beyond what you would ever ask. I asked that my servant could get healed, and Jesus said, oh, I'm going to do a whole lot more for you than heal your servant. I'm going to give you citizenship into the kingdom of heaven. Your whole world is going to change. 
So you, you received a card when you came in. It looks like this. And there's a lot of ways that you can respond. If you just kind of tear it off, you can just take this part. And I wonder if somebody is looking over this and you realize here's a box that says, I'm, I want to follow Jesus. That's what I want, Pastor Rick. I, I want to become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. I would love for my sins to be forgiven. I would love to have the life that God created me to live. I would love to know that when this life is over, beyond this life, that God will take care of my eternity too. I want this desperately. And so here's what I, here's what I would just invite you to consider doing this morning. That is just write your name on the other side of the card, but on that side, check that box. And put a phone number. And just say, I, I want to talk more about faith. I want to talk more about what it means to be forgiven of sin. I want to talk more about what it means to become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. I want to talk about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And, 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 and as you do this, we are going to reach out to you this week and, and find a way that you can sit down with myself or another pastor and have a conversation about what it means to follow Jesus. I want you to stand with me too. You can write down other concerns on this card and you can write down prayer requests or you can, you can check other boxes. Take a minute to look that over. And when you leave, you can drop it in the connect box. There's one at every exit. There's a red box by the door. You just drop it in there or hand it to a greeter when you leave. You could also come this morning. You could also do what David Owsler did in the story I shared a few minutes ago. He stepped out into an aisle and he walked down and he found himself kneeling at an altar and a pastor praying with him. And you could do that today. And you could pray actually about anything you want to pray about this morning. Altars are great places to spend time talking with God. And so as we sing this morning, I want you to respond. And you can respond by either checking a box and dropping it in a box when you leave. Or you can respond by coming forward today. So let's respond to God since He has spoken to us. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online at BethanyNaz.org.